Hey fam, it's Friday. <laughs> oh, I might be too old to pull that off, but isn't that family for you? I mean, we just go with things, whether they work or not. And there's something unabashedly charming about that, if you ask me, sometimes. <laughs> but I'm excited because today we are diving into part two of our chat with Dr. Ryan Vidreen, and there's a lot of tea to discuss. So you know how we do it, fam. Let's get to steeping. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. So, what a week, y'all. It's actually been a stellar week. But a busy week, too. My handsome hubs is on a work trip to Denmark. And I mean, you got to love for-profit jobs, don't you? I mean, it's actually funny. I remember years ago when I was a program manager for an outpatient treatment program in the L.A. area. We had like a staff breakfast and I won like a $20 gift card to the ladies footlocker. So that like buys me about a third of one shoe. Not even a pair. <laughs> but I got this $20 gift card and it was a big win. And so I remember at the time my husband worked for a company and that company would have these random wheel spins and would like also incentivize certain things where you could earn extra wheel spins, whether it was for, you know, increased productivity, sales, whatever, all the things and promote happy workplace culture, that that sort of spiel. And so I remembered I called him and I was like, babe, I just won. Like, are you sitting down? Because I just won $20 to the ladies footlocker. And I was serious. I was proud of that. Right. And he in that same conversation, I remember him sharing with me Oh, you know what? That's awesome. I won something today, too. I got to do a wheel spin and I won a trip to New York City. And I was like, wow, wow. We have different jobs and I wouldn't trade my job for anything. I love the work I do. I loved my work then. I love my work now, working with clients, training, consulting, now podcasting with y'all to advocate for more resources for our OCD fam and for this community. But it, it's just kind of a funny reminder that the nonprofit perks are just a shade different than for-profit perks. Anywho, my husband is away. And it's that time of year, it was school picture week, which meant we needed to get haircuts, and there was a field trip, and a PTA fundraiser, and I mean, just all the things. So I am rolling out the podcast a bit later in the day, but hey, I'm proud of all I've accomplished. So again, I'm calling it a win. Also, speaking of winning, we are welcoming back Dr. Ryan Vidreen this week, our esteemed interventional psychiatrist and OCD specialist for part two of our med chat. For our newer fam, please note that all the links, details, 
citations, resources that come up in any given episode each week are always available over at ocdfamilypodcast.com. You just go to the blog, find the episode, and you will get all the details. So you can check out last week and this week to find out more about Ryan and the dynamic work he is doing. Also, just a quick housekeeping note, because we are continuing our conversation, we're building out from that foundation that we created last week. So if you haven't heard part one, I would recommend pausing and giving that episode a listen first, because that's going to help provide further context for our conversation today. Additionally, I want to extend out a trigger warning for this week's content as we're going to be discussing a myriad of hot topics. But right out of the gate here, we are expanding a bit more on our conversation about hospitalization. And that includes, but isn't limited to harm OCD themes, suicidal or homicidal ideation, psychosis. And we're also going to be talking about some substance use as well as emerging research around psychedelics. So I want to just give people that trigger warning to listen with discretion if any of these themes or topics are triggering. But there's a whole lot more we're going to be discussing as well. We're going to be talking about some of our observations around sleep or lack thereof, the danger of using pathologizing language. We're going to talk about potential misdiagnoses, just some observations we've had. And we're going to talk about ICBT and ERP, our other two treatments that quench, otherwise known as inference-based cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure and response prevention. So it's going to be a really dense conversation today, but I know I have found it so incredibly helpful, so I really can't wait to share more of it with you. This has been such a good conversation, and I still have ICBT on my list. I still have psychedelics. Oh, I know. <laughs> There's so much more I want to talk about. I'm open. If you wanted to keep going, I can. Let's get it. That would be great. Well, thanks, Ryan. One of the things we talked about previously, hospitalization, the harm subset of OCD, suicidality and homicidality. Clients have had such traumatizing experiences. And I'm sure the doctors love getting a good call from the therapist of like, hey, by the way, this really extreme presentation this person's been inpatient for four days is actually uh, OCD. There is an appropriate need for approaching situations just like we would do with anybody else, our loved ones, our doctors or whatnot, as professionals reaching out and going, hey, I'm going to give you this heads up, but in a way that isn't, let me tell you how this works, okay? Because doctors don't love hearing from therapists of like, hi, so I'm going to tell you what medication I think you should use yeah. and what this is. But there's a nuancing to building that relationship because we have to understand Yes, we're coming in maybe with an expertise of OCD and understanding that. They're coming in with their expertise of understanding how things work medically with the brain, how that impacts the body, how that impacts symptom management, sleep, eating, all the things. And so one of the things that's really important, and when you and I talked before, was really just being able to go into these conversations with, hi, I have some information here about this client, but also like, let me know how you want me to engage with you around this because I know you're busy. I know I'm busy. And what we both want what's best for the client. We want what's ethical and good and beneficial to them. And so even starting that conversation from that posture of you know you, I know me, and, and how can we make this work as easily as possible is a really good starting point. 
But anything else that you would add to that in terms of building that collaboration across disciplines? Yeah, I think one thing that you kind of alluded to was it's it's fantastic and, and totally within the scope of your therapist practice to say, hey, it might be time to talk to someone about meds. It's really challenging and really hard on the psychiatrist if you've named a med. And oftentimes, because the therapist training isn't in understanding the med interactions that that person might have and understanding some genetic thing or metabolism different. I don't know. There's a whole host of factors that might go. Maybe there was a family member that you don't happen to know about that's actually on a med that works really, really well. That's a different one than the one you named. And based on shared genetics, that might be a better choice to start with. So it really kind of puts us in a hole or like a, a box, if you will, when they come in with that. And now we're kind of like fighting against this thing they had had their mindset on and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I think it's it would be good to be mindful of not naming specific meds or doses, but just get them to us to talk about meds. Or if you're going to name something, name a whole bunch. And, you know, there's all these out there. Maybe one of those will be good. Otherwise, yeah, I, I'm a psychiatrist that really believes in collaboration. So I'm fairly accessible. Like I, I'm fine with emails. Therapists I work a lot with you often will have a voice voicemail number for me so they can just leave a voicemail and we don't have to like figure out how to schedule all of this time exactly like, well, We'll voicemail back and forth. When we do, we find a time, right? But, you know, we keep coming up in, in different ways. The system sucks and our, our system does not support the American medical system does not support collaboration in the way that is often needed. And so if you find that really challenging, I would be skeptical personally of provider who really showed no interest in collaboration. Now, sometimes you have, again, the system, you have no options. That's the only person with an opening and that's who they have to see. So me, if you can do, you know, if you're in those settings locally, if you can do lunch meetings or lunch and learns personally from like your own practice, it's going to be a nice investment because it's mutual referrals and you can feel better when you send someone there. You have more trust. You know them. If you can talk to them, it might make them more open. It really, really highly depends on the system they're working in. And sometimes that psychiatrist also has no idea you've ever reached out to them, but two to three front desk staff have filtered your message away from them. So right. I've also gotten that of people who thought they were reaching out and thought I was being an asshole and I had never even known that they tried to contact me. So Right. And then they're like on the Google review, this person doesn't even <laughs> respond. And you're like, I don't even know who you are. Not that I could say I know who you are, but who are you? Yeah. However you can collab, like however you can network. Because I think a lot of the networking, right, is like therapists with therapists and and this and that. But like if you can interprofessionally network, I think it's a huge advantage to your patients. And then ask the psychiatrist, like what works for you in the system you're in? Are emails good? Are voicemails better? Should I email a different person on your staff to set up a phone call? And if so, you probably don't want to hear from me every single time I see the patient. Like what's your threshold? What do you want to hear about? Right. Like those are good questions to put out there. Yeah. Yeah. Just talk about it. I mean, it seems so common sense, but at the same point, like, I think we all get in go, go, go mode. And sometimes we don't stop to just be like, oh, we know what we don't want. We know when someone's annoying the hell out of us because they're just like, Bleh. and you're like, oh, my gosh, like, chill. but we don't often say what we do want. Right. So similar to advice we might give families sometimes of let's focus on the behavior we want to see. Let's focus on what we do want, right? Like, okay, we want to be able to collaborate. So how am I not going to be a pain in your butt? And I'm not going to feel like you totally don't want to even hear from me either. How can we build that relationship? And then also understanding from the therapeutic side, 
especially when we talk about how important building trust is and how a lot of people are coming into a medical situation, not necessarily trusting the provider just because of how they were raised or worldview, et cetera. If they've trusted you enough to go and investigate this further with a doctor, then your voice has a lot of authority in there. So yeah, if you're saying, hey, this is a great medication for OCD, it may be a great medication yeah. for OCD, but you're also not the doctor. I tried to lean into the IOCDF list that from the research that I've been able to do, like these are some medications that respond really well in OCD cases. You're probably aware of that. I don't want to waste your time with that, but I just, this is kind of where I'm coming from. But coming in there with kind of that open stance and that open posture, not speaking at people, but with people is going to be very important. And so I think that's really good, really good feedback. Another thing that kind of shows up in the hospitalization realm, certainly we see substance use, co-occurring substance use shows up a lot too. But I've also seen this around psychosis or our understanding of psychosis. And so having some discussion about when OCD can get so heightened, distressing, the noise can be so much that our insight is pretty poor and our reality testing is pretty poor. Distinguishing that from a psychotic disorder where we're going to see more psychosis because in our inpatients, especially when we're thinking of younger populations in psychosis, I think sometimes OCD is getting labeled as psychosis. Sometimes with our elder population, it's getting labeled as Alzheimer's. And certainly if you have the brain scan and all the things knowing that there's dementia going on and all of that, I'm not saying Alzheimer's doesn't happen. It obviously happens. But OCD can present in some of these more severe ways. And if you go into a hospitalization treating psychosis, you could be on Zyprexa for the rest of your life or, or another antipsychotic when really you were dealing with an OCD episode. So can we talk a little bit? It's a big, it's a big conversation. So I realize we're not going to even skim the surface on justice here. But because this is something that shows up along with harm and, and suicidality or homicidality in our inpatient units and partial hospitalization units, how to distinguish really like how OCD can look very similar and overlap. Yes. Yeah, it's, it, it's challenging. Every case is very different. I've certainly, as you alluded to, have seen several cases that were diagnosed as psychotic or even sometimes bipolar disorder that I'm fairly certain are just OCD, but really, really severe OCD lands sometimes in this weird gray zone where it is hard to tell. So you're looking at insight, but all of these things are spectrum, right? So from the spectrum of an overvalued idea to frankly delusional, uh, there's a middle point that's hard to say sometimes. Insight is similarly, most of the time, our, our patients with OCD, we can detect that there is some insight that they don't believe with 100% certainty that this is how it is. But what if it is? And maybe I don't fully trust myself and I know no one else believes this, but uh -huh. what happens to me, right? Like, so that's a, that's obviously more consistent with OCD than, than frank psychosis. The ones that I have found tend to be people that have a lot of both just right and mental obsessive compulses, right? So things that involve like posturing, if I don't hold my body in a certain way, then this bad thing might happen. So it ends up looking like catatonia or they are, they appear frozen because what they're doing is mentally walking backwards all of the steps they just took down the hall and get it just right in their head before they can move again or something that will happen, right? So again, right. not the average everyday walk into your office presentation. It's really severe, but it looks 
shocking. It looks not right. They seem blank or stuck or frozen or catatonic. And so and some of the time they can't get the words out to tell you what's happening. So I will also say in defense of some of the inpatient providers, by the time I talk to them and they just explained to me what was happening the whole time, they've had a few days of meds that might have allowed that to happen with me that didn't happen initially. But yeah, so you're I mean, a lot of the question is why? Like, why do you do that? Do you think that that's absolutely true? Is there any other possibility for this or trying to judge like how are they thinking about this and what is the reason behind how they look like they look? And I also have cases where I'm not certain. I I think this is probably going to be OCD, but it's a little bit of a bizarre one. It's a little bit weird. And sometimes I'll send those people for second opinion consults at a psychosis center or with someone who specializes in that just to sort of check your work. Yeah, yeah. Also, sometimes when people are at the point of having this much distress, sometimes they stop sleeping very well because they're so distraught or they stop eating. There might be even be a belief that the food could be poisoned or whatever. You know, there can be a lot of different things going on within that. And so if you don't have a nourished brain, something I've learned from the eating disorder specialists that I've been working with have been that OCD symptomology could increase in a malnourished brain. So if you're not getting enough food, but also, If you are not getting enough sleep, that is going to have a huge impact on how you perceive the world around you. And I think, yeah, and I think that's often what happens a lot for people that sometimes demonstrate this really poor reality testing. It's like they haven't slept in like weeks, really, really slept, gotten some really, really good sleep. And they are so incredibly distressed. And so they go into maybe a unit or they express some kind of fear of harming somebody and they end up getting put on a unit. And really what's beneficial to them is that they're put on these really strong medications that typically, I'm just going to say, it's not a fair, accurate representation fully, but people are put on really strong medications and then discharged once they're in that zombie mode where they're less disruptive, I guess you could say, right? And so if somebody is going in there, could it be the really strong medication? Sure. It could also be that they had medication and support to sleep and they got some sleep and are feeling a little more insightful about what's going on in their world. And so can we talk about like the shit really that can be caused by poor sleep and how that can complicate factors too? Yeah. People sort of talk about sleep a lot, but like not at a level that I think we often miss talking about. So I have multiple patients right now, I would say, who have OCD. That is their primary diagnosis and may have had one sort of psychotic or parapsychotic episode at some point. It's never happened again. We don't really know what happened, but sleep is highly implicated. And or the other thing that happens often is marijuana use, right? They're trying to medicate away anxiety and end up using high doses of cannabis And so with both of those things, psychosis and our kind of hypomania to mania, these are spectrums. And in the normal population, if you sleep restrict, you can see a lot of these things precipitate that otherwise wouldn't have. Yeah. So when I was in residency, we did overnight shifts where you're working through the night and stuff. And some people feel dead and exhausted and have to go home and sleep. I'm on the spectrum where I'm like, by the morning, if I was up on it, I'm actually wired and I'm like, ready to go. What are we going to do? Right. And it's like, and there's like vague, not inappropriate, but sort of slightly hyper manic type feeling of like, yeah. I somehow got more energy. Right. And so that's all within the realm of kind of a normal experience. And I, I definitely think 
sometimes. And again, if, you, if you're able to get the information, OCD patients are often saying, yes, I was up all night and I didn't sleep. But like it's because I was scared if I didn't clean this thing or I didn't right. do whatever that like I wouldn't something bad was going to happen or I wouldn't be able to until I could move on until it was done. So that's really different from not wanting sleep or needing sleep or not being tired. Right. And so I, I think oftentimes in, in the psychosis examples, that is definitely a factor in some of these bipolar diagnoses. That is definitely a factor, even just if your anxiety is that bad and you're not sleeping. Well, the other thing that starts to follow aside from insight is irritability, right? So now we have irritable picture that has been labeled bipolar by some. And then, and then just OCD by itself with sleep. I think it's one of the most consistent things across all of the OCD research is worsening obsessions and anxiety with worsening sleep. And so we can talk about meds all day, but one of the things that is always should be always in a treatment plan with any of the OCD patients is what does your sleep look like? And it might actually make a lot of sense to get you sleeping better first before we are even going down this other path. Yeah. Yeah. I, I say to clients a lot, this, I don't know what the, it's been so long since I've heard the actual statistics. I can't really cite where it is and I might be flubbing up the number. <laughs> I'm just making up a number now is basically what I'm saying. No, but 70 to 80% or whatnot of our problems, if we're not getting enough sleep or getting the nourishment that our body needs, the fuel that our body needs, then 70 to 80% of our problems are going to feel a whole lot worse, right? And it's not to say that we don't have anything that we're, we're dealing with or struggling with, but like I know, for example, you know, I can get hangry if I haven't eaten, right? I can also train my body to do intermittent fasting where I can feel fueled even if I haven't eaten and it depends on the conditions. But at some point, I'm going to need to eat. And if I don't, then that's going to impact my mood. It sure is. And same with sleep. Like if I'm not getting rested sleep and if I'm waking up constantly through the night and, and this was an aha moment for me. As an adult, even learning like people that get up to go to the bathroom more during the night, it's usually because of this restlessness moving around in the bladder that your body is going to have this physiological like, okay, yep, we got to empty that. But if you're sleeping well and not restless, even if for years you're like, oh, no, I've always had to get up to go to the bathroom three times during the night, like you necessarily get up because you're getting good rested sleep, like rested sleep. It's kind of the like it's it's the diet and exercise of mental health. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's good. You should do that. Yeah. Get sleep. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's like infrastructure for the country. Right. I mean, right. is think about it. Right. Because both things can be true. Like we underappreciate and underaddress sleep and, and healthy lifestyle and nutrition and all of and exercise too much. Right. I also have severe cases of OCD where they're like, Right. But shouldn't I just like change my diet and, and this will go away? Like I read that I could do that. I'm like, no, probably not. But it's certainly not going to help if you're eating a shitty diet. Right. 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 Or, or then we have also orthorexia where we have people coming out and going like, actually, if it's not pure and it's not this and it's not that. Ugh, and they get so zoomed into like the weeds of what they're eating that sometimes they're not eating as much because their world gets very, very, very small as it does with OCD and a lot of other things when we're so zoomed into to a detail here or there. So yeah, no, that's really helpful because I think like it's the boring, non-sexy answer, like you getting sleep, but also that will screw with you guys if you don't get enough sleep. So as any like newborn mom or parent who's like, yeah, like you need to be able to have the sleep. 
you've mentioned this a couple of times and I will say like it's ancillary from kind of just my observation. So I can't speak to it much more than that. But I do feel like bipolar disorder has been increased as a diagnosis where sometimes I'm like, I don't know that we're dealing with bipolar. We have the presence of mania that may have looked like this or this, but it also was very conditioned and functioning in a very specific way that feels very much in line with things like OCD, or sometimes we can have some of that come out of BDD or other areas too. And so do you think that bipolar has been a little bit like we've been diagnosed as happy on bipolar when it's not a true bipolar presentation? Therapists that know me that are listening are going to be like, oh God, here he goes. (laughs) No, I, I, I see that diagnosis come into my office very frequently in ways that I think often turn out to probably not be the case, which is sad when someone has been on medications that perhaps had caused a lot of weight gain or or diabetes risk or this or that. And and I don't consider myself a bipolar specialist, so I don't feel the need to say that, but a little bit of a tangent maybe, but like I, I, my, my beef broader than that specific diagnosis is that I do think we, in the current system, modern society, we over pathologize the hell out of things that are normal parts of hard human experiences right so and more and more people are starting to write about this now but like is it depression if you're grieving the loss of a a really meaningful job or someone in your family right or is it depression if you just went through a huge breakup and yes you're feeling sad and i mean things that are really hard if you lay out those symptoms they line up with what we put in the diagnosis of a depressive disorder and we have these somewhat arbitrary timelines of like two weeks and this and that right so i think and then we also use like diagnosis specific pathologizing language as colloquial language right so oh i was hypomanic i kind of did it i guess in my own example earlier being after post call but like so oftentimes people use that language to describe things that aren't really that and oftentimes they're irritable they're not sleeping well their moods are shifting back and forth and they've come from someone who said i think you're bipolar and it's when when you look at it right they're in a society where like they're strapped on finances, their household income is very low and the cost of living is very high. They just got out of a, a breakup. They are working in an environment that doesn't fully treat them like they should be treated. I don't know. I'm like making up this example, right? But there's usually a whole host of yeah. social things that could actually explain that. And so with those kinds of disorders, I, I try to be until proven otherwise kind of thing. Like unless we have some pretty concrete stuff to go on, I try to be really judicious because it has ramifications about what type of medications you might be put on, what might happen to you if you show up in an ED with that diagnosis on the chart. So I, I think I do find that sometimes those get probably diagnosis in general are sort of too quick and, and too pathologizing. Yeah. I had this moment, well, and there are like old studies about this too in the psychology world as well, but like how pathologizing and institutionalizing like certain language and diagnoses can be and trying to break out of that stigma. I mean, they've taken people that weren't even dealing with this thing and you you get treated a certain way enough and you can start to become the picture of what people would expect you to be. And it's just part of, it's kind of this more broader kind of social experiment of what can happen. But when I was younger uh, and so full of energy and life (laughs) and wanting to make a difference in the world, I remember 
getting in this debate with a provider because there was a diagnosis of bipolar because there was mania and it wasn't mania. It was it was a lot of the things we were talking about. It was insomnia. It was a lot of other things too. And they were like, you are not going to change the verbiage in this chart. We are not going back in time and we're not changing this. And I'm like, fine, but this isn't bipolar. This isn't bipolar where we suddenly had a manic episode in our late 50s, early 60s with no prior presentation of this. And we can show that there were all these poor things going on, poor sleep and even a stroke, different things that impact how the brain is functioning. And it was like, I don't care. We're not changing that. It says bipolar. There's a history of mania. The end. Right. And so realizing like, okay, that sucks, right? Because you can't, and, and people are afraid, very afraid of their offices, especially if you have like employer-based here in the States, if you have an employer-based insurance plan or whatnot, I have this diagnosis, I have this in the chart, I don't want this to follow me. And some of these diagnoses feel not only severe, but aren't even accurate sometimes, you know? So it, it gets really challenging and yeah, I mean, it's probably whole another, another example of our system being a little broken, right? Because it, it's it's really shitty for the person with it. And it also has weird implications. So, right, like now it's on a chart or it has to be used in billing, like the way that we have to set up things. And then if it is on there, but I'm not giving them a med for that, then someone will look back and say that I gave inappropriate treatment and it's not good for anyone. And I think it makes a lot of people Right. So there's this kind of quick to diagnose some of these things that may be normal human experiences. And then if you're giving a diagnosis, then what are you supposed to do? You got to give a treatment. Right. And right. sometimes so I, I am there's obviously a, a huge spectrum of, of what you will do. But I do think sometimes the most effective treatment is just to be able to say, yeah, it really fucking sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and am I allowed to curse? Yeah, there... I always preface at the top of the show <laughs> that it's for adults because there's adult language. Because OCD has adult language. We all much have yeah. adult language, but OCD doesn't shy away from and sometimes makes a, a shame thing and intrusive <laughs> that if you have language. So, yes, you you yeah. curse away, man. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think the most effective treatment can be to say that really fucking sucks. And I think it's really normal. I can give you some stuff that might make you feel it less and it may numb it a little bit. It may turn it down. I don't know if that's the best thing. It might be important to get through this and to feel this. Now, if it gets to a point where it really is like disrupting your life, then maybe maybe it is necessary and, and, and we'll do that and we'll support you. But like maybe it's just important to give that stuff some time. And I think there's a lot of pressure not to just say that. And I think in my experience, patients have sometimes just actually appreciated that. Right. Just hearing like, yeah, actually, this is a system problem or a social problem or a whatever problem. And it sucks. I can't fix it. But also I'm, I'm glad that someone sees that. Right. Right. And, you know, being able to then educate yourself of, OK, if this isn't actually bipolar and this was related to these different factors and we can tell because of the treatment, we're treating the OCD and this got better. And I'm not on the specific bipolar med, but it's still getting better. And some meds can be used for both. So it could get confusing. But yeah, then I can go in. Because if I'm having some complications and I need to potentially even step up into a higher level of care, I can go in and I can say, I didn't actually have mania. I know it's going to say that. And that never looks good from the person coming and going like, oh, no, that's not really what it is. And they're like, sure. Okay. Poor insight, right? But 
if you're saying that and your doctor's saying that and your spouse is saying that, I guess we could still ignore all those people, but you're not alone. You don't have to be alone in that. And so teaming together, similar to kind of the advice you were giving earlier, Ryan, about like if you're going in and you're not sure about some of the harm stuff and suicidality and this stuff, like don't be alone on that team. Have a team of people that can check each other and go, okay, we're all kind of keeping a pulse on this. Because then when you go into your higher level of care, whether it says bipolar or not, and they're going to want to maybe take treatment this way, if there's enough of us going, this is really presented really more as OCD. And so we know that, well, certain things, certain treatments are going to be beneficial across the board. Other treatments are not going to help with the OCD. And so we want to advocate for that then you can still get what you need going into a higher level of care. And you can rest assured that you've built this team that has your back. It's not just about your word versus the chart. Yeah. And I think one, one thing I try to do, and I think parents could do therapists, you know, we could all do again is in our language, right? Like not using like pathology language to describe actually a behavior. So if someone in my intake assessment is saying, oh, I was hypomanic last weekend, I, okay, we're not going to, let's not use that word. I, what does that actually mean? Like describe to me what happened or how you were, right? And same thing, like if you're a parent, you could say, well, I, I'm depressed today or, or this week or whatever. Oh, does that mean you're really stressed or worried about something? Does that mean that you are sad? Something hard happened, right? Like, because depression is considered this thing. And I think the more we can use that other type of language, it's helpful across the system. Yes, yes. My my husband's going to smile because his <laughs> his family, and my mother-in-law is a therapist too, but his family would always joke around about like, oh, you're being so histrionic. And I'm like, I don't like this. I have to like tell my husband, like, I'm like, I don't want us using these words. And he's like, well, I don't think they mean anything by it. And I'm like, I don't think they have poor intentions at all. Should they be listening? I know you don't have poor intentions, but what I would say is, this is how the meaning gets skewed and oral tradition of going around and using these words in these different contexts and people now applying these contexts. This is why even, you know, I was talking with Dr. Patrick McGrath and he was like, yeah, people go around and use that even with OCD, right? And that's part of the reason why OCD then isn't taken seriously because we think OCD is just, you know, this like, oh, I want things to fit neatly in this. And it doesn't. Oh, let me do that. Oh, that feels good. Right? Like, that's not OCD. And so it's a really good point that you're making that we need to be careful about how we're describing instead of just operationalizing it for ourselves because then it loses some of the meaning. And when we go in and we say this word, then we're not actually communicating the same thing. We have different languages going on now. And that's not helpful for us. (laughs) I think it's a skill to particularly think about like younger people and teens and like it's useful to have a broader emotional vocabulary, right? Like, again, thinking of kind of a depression example, like it's more helpful if we can teach you to distinguish sadness from worry, from fatigue, from burnout, from all of these things, rather than only having one word that says I'm depressed. I mean, that's. That's not to your advantage either, despite, you know, separate from this whole, like it makes communication hard. And I I sometimes will talk about with patients too, like panic versus 
like panic and fear versus excitement and arousal, right? And anticipation. So if you're having a panic attack in the middle of the street and your heart is racing and you're getting sweaty and your uh, muscles are tensing, mm -hmm. well, that might be the exact same response you're having, imagining sex with the dream of your life person in Hollywood or whatever it is, right? right? Like all the same somatic sensations, it's really relevant. What's the context we put on it and what are we wanting, right? And so helping people, I think, really narrow those down and have which path is this? Which like language is this? What's the nuanced feeling or, or thing here more so than these just sort of lump sum categories? Yeah. And it's a really good point because so many, it's like saying, I have a headache. It's like, oh, it could be 8,000 things, right? <laughs> it could be literally 8,000. We need more information. But also when we think even about something like depression, where irritability could be a big piece of it, right? Well, when we look at pediatric cases of anxiety and anybody in the therapist field here is going to be like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, DSM, this looks like irritability in kids, right? So irritability can literally be anything. Irritability also can be completely justified. You're still feeling it. And sometimes we're going to feel it. There's nothing to do with it other than feel irritated. Somebody cuts me off in traffic, I might be irritable. I might go, oh, that person was rude. They could have caused an accident. There's nothing for me to do to zap that away other than to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm mad about that and work through that. So there's part of it is like that normalized, where is this just kind of your normalized irritability? Where is there something where, yeah, we can actually see how the brain and how our neurotransmitters are also impacting. We might have a chemical predisposition, a neurological predisposition to this, but also irritability can just look like so many different things. I mean, another, you know, aside from bipolar, oppositional defiant disorder. I see this for kids, right? This is probably, that's probably my soapbox issue. And I'm not going to, folks, what, usually what I will say if somebody's like, oh, okay. yes, my child has an ODD diagnosis, I'll say, interesting so do you do you find yourself getting meaning out of that or do you feel like that fits that's often my start off question because i feel like odd is another label that we can just slap on some irritability here or some anger some frustration and i don't know that it's really helping solve the problem <laughs> that is causing this increase in <laughs> irritability and so that's probably again a whole nother soapbox i could go on but but yeah, it's a really good point in terms of starting to understand why are we using the language we're using? What is the meaning? What is the context that we're adding to that? That's helpful information. It's important. Well, people, again, with teens, it's interesting. So people are starting to look at and, and study and write about what does it mean to identify with a term, right? Or to have a diagnosis. So what does it do to a teen to be labeled with depression? And does that actually potentially propagate depression? Because of what that might mean to them of this disorder, right? And so again, if 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 we're letting or teaching or whatever, having them be like, I'm depressed every day, increasingly that might actually be doing a thing just by using that language rather than like today I feel sad because, right? And and having that connotate something very different. Right. Um, right. There are some people that are going to tune in just to talk about the psychedelics. Where's the conversation? Fair enough. And this was a big theme at the conference this year. So we had the conference in San Francisco, your hometown here. And as we were talking about before we were recording, this is a lot more common 
in your area, in your treatment area, than it is here in the middle of my cornfield. Uh, not to say that people don't want to or don't engage in psychedelics, but this is there's some research studies and there is a movement of exploration here in terms of how psychedelics, even deep brain stimulation, which we talked about briefly, I think too, but how this could potentially be helpful, could potentially be a game changer, especially when we look at some refractory cases of OCD where it's just so severe and we've not found a lot of help and support of other things working for folks with psychedelics. And would love to, because I know this this is an area that you've been interested in learning more about as well. So would love to lean into what is it exactly, first of all, for anybody new to this conversation, what are we looking at when we're talking about psychedelics for the treatment of OCD or any other mental health disorder? Yeah. People sometimes use the term a little more broadly or specifically in terms of things like really classical psychedelics like psilocybin mushrooms or LSD, things like ayahuasca versus MDMA or colloquially Molly, right? Yeah. To see is not technically typically a classic psychedelic, but often it can be very impactful, meaningful, have psychedelic-like experiences. Uh-huh. And then ketamine is now the one that is kind of most widely accessible currently and, and legal. And again, it's, it's a dissociative agent. It's used as an anesthetic at higher doses, has been around for a very long time, is not classically a psychedelic, but has clearly in some people elicited really impactful, meaningful, altered states of consciousness that can be sort of parapsychedelic or psychedelic light, if you will. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of a lot of the substances that that people are looking at. Ketamine is the only one that's legal right now and commercially available. Yeah. Psilocybin and MDMA are both in multiple studies and are likely to probably get an FDA approval within the next year or two. Yeah. So that's those are the ones that are kind of most often talked about. Ketamine, and this is, I will, I will admit, I don't know a ton about ketamine, but ketamine, my kind of frame of reference for that has been for people dealing with chronic pain, chronic issues. And that made me just think, too, like, how would you differentiate ketamine usage and the effects, because some of the effects you were describing from something like an opiate use? So that's actually a really interesting question because one of the effects of ketamine may be at opioid receptors. So I know Stanford at one point was doing some research trying to give ketamine, but also block the opioid receptor. And the profile of response was a little bit different, at least in the initial thing that I saw. So that I think is an open question, partially because of this opioid crisis. People are wanting to make sure, are we not just doing something that could further an opioid crisis, right? Which... It does seem to be different and it's certainly not just a a classic opioid, but it may have some action at those receptors. So that's something that people are exploring in pain and and places where you would want like an anesthetic. It's it's typically higher doses than what we often would use to treat depression and suicidality, which are the things that ketamine is currently approved for. Yeah. So first of all, you don't get FDA approval without the research, right? And then there are some people that are a little skeptical even on FDA and Big Pharma and all that stuff. And so when we're thinking about ketamine, yes, it's approved and it's the subject of further study here. But psilocybin was probably like the star of shit we want. What do we have? What do we don't have? What can we get on the street? Like certainly where you are. 
people yeah. have access to psilocybin. They have access to MDMA. It's not to say you can't get access in areas where, like, where I am, but it's more readily accessible. It's like what marijuana is probably not as prominent as marijuana, but like that in the sense of before that was legal in California, you could get it. And so you're going to have people coming in that are going to be choosing to self-medicate with that. But we also have some studies, and not just here, also in the UK and, and other areas of the world, where psilocybin is being examined to the extent that it can be safely right now. And so can we talk a little bit more about that? Because I think psilocybin, for some folks, they're going to be like, I don't understand what that is. And other folks are going to be like, yep, I use it. And it makes a difference. <laughs> yeah. And I think right now there are trials with psilocybin mushrooms being a treatment for OCD at a few, I think, I think three, maybe there's a fourth, but I think three centers in the U.S. So we don't know the results fully yet. So that's kind of a question that's open. So right now, in terms of what's, is there evidence for treating OCD? Not really. It's being done. We're hopeful. In terms of depression, so psilocybin has been shown in a number of trials, and that's probably what we it will get its sort of first FDA approval for. MDMA has um, been shown in PTSD research. Trauma, yeah. Yeah, and, and to have quite profound results there. And, my, you know, I, I'm actually in some ways more excited about the MDMA research and the potential um, mm -hmm. and the way that it promotes pro-social connection and bonding and the way that it in some ways kind of turns down the amygdala and fear centers and lets people be a little more open, a little more vulnerable, I think would be great for society currently, would be great in couples work, and I think would be great in OCD. So that's my thought about it. That's not been shown yet. But there are yeah. people that are starting to. There is a little bit of OCD research on ketamine and, and Stanford's done a lot of it, but it's all kind of very short term. And some, I think in the most recent stuff, they showed that giving some ketamine definitely improves symptoms. But if you kept going, I think by a month or so, it kind of just resumes back towards baseline. But that brings up, well, what if I got a ketamine dose every three weeks or something like that? Mm -hmm. um, so again, it remains to be shown in OCD and in, in these specific ways. A lot of where you see it tried is kind of just modeled off of what's been done in depression. Right. You can see depression has set the precedent here for a lot of things, SSRI regulations and all that, which great, great. We have research that helps with that. But what's interesting and then speaking to that is for some folks, that regimen might work perfectly. For other folks, we just know that it's going to be individualized. So that's where we have to kind of zoom out and go personalize healthcare. If we're dealing with mental health, but a different a different animal here, or even just within a different person. Most, if not all of these studies, I should say, are typically high dose, higher dose sessions. Mm -hmm. As trained professional as a guide or therapist and include preparatory work and integration work after the fact. So this is not like pop a psychedelic and go about your business. See if your life's better. <laughs> That's the control group, <laughs> right? No. <laughs> yeah, it's it's mostly not microdosing, although there's a little bit there and maybe that will come. But like most of the studies and where the likely approvals will happen is not in microdosing, although people I hear all the time are, are trying this stuff. So that's where we have most of our kind of research evidence currently is on these preparative therapy sessions with a high dose with a professional and then integration sessions go over what you experienced and make meaning of it and how do you want to carry it with you. Yeah. 
admittedly, most of my contacts around MDMA, around mushrooms, is from the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Uh, <laughs> I've learned a lot about that. But you also think about why are people participating in these different drug experiences? There is a meaning. There's a function to it, right? You know, and so, and like you're saying with MDMA, where there is more of even a, a relational piece, but it can also help when we when we look at what has been done with that around PTSD or around trauma. We look at how could this, you know, anything could be abused, and a lot of times in the situations it's being abused. But how could this paired with a specific treatment regimen? make an impact and so it is really important to consider when these trials are going on it's not just like hey we're taking shrooms and and going about our day it's it's looking at how this would pair with a treatment protocol and then you have to consider has this person tried other treatments before and has that impacted their ability are they getting sleep are they doing you know all those different other questions that we've also been discussing during our time together and so there are a lot of pieces to that, but it is easier to access than ever anything really that you want. If you are determined enough to get access to it, you're going to get access to it. And so also one of the things we talked about before recording was then if we know people are using it and we're not going out and saying, use it, use it. But if we know people are using it, what is important for us then to know as professionals, just as it is with pot or alcohol or anything else, how this could be impacting and without endorsing, yep, go, go do it. We know you're doing it. So how can we give some safety and guidance around how this can impact them in their mental health? Yeah. And I, I would say for any professional therapist or otherwise, I think at this point, it's probably your responsibility to go learn about it. You don't need to do a full, you know, I did a year long training, but you don't need to do that. But there's lots of little mini online programs you can do, yeah. you know, and or a long update on the effects of some of these things, a weekend course. But I think we all probably had some version of alcohol use disorder training in training, right? Where you learned yeah. about effects, how to do motivational interviewing, how to like do all that, right? So at this point, it's prevalent enough that you should learn about it. What the, the what the principles are, are the, that I think about and talk with people are set and setting. And, and this is something talked a lot about in, in the pioneers of the psychedelic world and even cultures that have used this for a long time is like, what are your intentions? Kind of what is your mindset going into this? What do you want to get out of it? And the setting of it, which is hopefully in this context, something that's therapeutic. Mm -hmm. That might be a safe, quiet, warm office with a professional, it could be in nature in within a controlled way and in a safe way. Right. Do you have enough time? Do you are you going to have kids getting home from school and running through as you <laughs> are doing this? Right. So it, being really thoughtful about it, a rave is not probably the place to take a medication for a mental health purpose that way. Like and, and when people control for and are thoughtful about set and setting and having someone with experience there, right? Not just being by yourself, but having someone who can put a hand on you if you're getting freaked out, who can reassure you or reality test you if you're panicking and make sure that you're safe, can help get you food, take you to the bathroom, whatever. Right. Having those, there's very, very, very minimal little adverse events if, you, if you're looking at studies. When they happen, it's almost always someone taking it in a different sort of 
set or setting or dose or, or situation that we wouldn't necessarily think is ideal. Yeah, you make a really good point. Like if you were going in, say, you know, a common treatment for someone that is dealing with a type of cancer might be a chemo treatment. And if you go in, they're going to, for a chemo infusion, there's going to be a protocol on how that happens. There's going to be a protocol, not only for you as the patient, but they're going to probably do your blood work and make sure that you are in a place where your body's going to be able to accept it, tolerate it, withstand it, whatever the situation is. And so when you get out of there, you're probably not going to go run a marathon. And you're probably going to have some side effects where you need to have somebody around and make sure that you can get your basic needs met, right? And that happens with a number of different things. And so really you're painting a picture of like this, this as an intervention, as a medical intervention, is really like anything else in the sense of we need to know what to expect. And if it's going to have an ability to alter your functioning afterwards, then there has to be some safeguards set up in terms of how you manage that effect, right? I was going to say, not just a medical, I mean, it is medical intervention and it's not legal yet, but like, I think it will be a form of self-care or it may be a form of recreation right. at, at some point. Like drinking or, and right? smoking and... Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's not that it has to be so procedural, but it does, it should be thoughtful, right? You you don't want to go drinking and driving. <laughs> you, right. you don't want tripping and I don't know, be hanging out on the edge of a cliff. <laughs> it's right. just like a little thoughtfulness, you know, in a dark, in the dark woods all by yourself. Probably not a great idea. Thinking yeah. through that, that piece. And I think, I think with, with mental health professionals and, and probably even parents, like it's not okay. It's not good enough now to say, well, it's illegal. We can't talk about it or you can't do it. Right. Like that, that doesn't fly with most other things. And like, would you rather them just do stuff without you knowing or be able to talk through the choices they're making? And right. patients are coming in. I know to my office all the time, particularly in the Bay Area, saying, I read Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, and I want to try this. And what do I do? Or I want to do it safely. And and while I'm always clear, I cannot legally recommend this to you, but please, if you're going to do something, let me know. We can try to make sure that the best of our ability, we address your medication situation and you go in safely and we check in shortly after you do this to make sure you're okay from it, um, that you're consulting professionals in that area if you're going to go for it, right? Right, right. I mean, it's kind of like sex. It's kind of like if we don't talk about it, it doesn't mean sex is not happening. <laughs> it means we just don't have information about safe sex or some of the consequences Absolutely. that can come from it. And it can also be very good. It can be it can be very scary. It could be all these different things. You could get in a situation that you wouldn't have otherwise just with a little bit of education. And so education is important. That's that's kind of the key thing here, right? Like it's 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 just important to be able to have that education. Some folks aren't going to feel comfortable talking with their family members, with their spouses, with their anybody, but somebody that I would hope you would always feel comfortable talking with is going to be your doctor because the reality is you're going to especially if you're going in into psychiatry or you're taking any other kind of medications in addition to that, you want to know that they're not going to have this really negative interaction. And so it's really, it's, it's important. It's important to have those conversations. And sometimes people worry, you know, I'm, you're going to tell on me, you're going to tell my person or whatever. But this is part of the, the importance, again, of building 
a trusting relationship and being able to say, I have fears and anxieties about saying this out loud, but the reality is I'm going to do it. So let's have an honest chat about how that's going to impact me. Yeah. And I think on the clinicians part, there's a lot of stigma and misinformation and things that have to be confronted. There's a lot of worry, right? Well, this is a legal thing. And, and with the legal climate here, people sometimes are so scared that they can take things too far, right? So just because something's illegal doesn't mean we can't talk about it with people and support them around what they choose. There's a lot of research on psychedelics. So I always tell people, it's not legal. I can't recommend it. I'm happy to talk through the research with you of what I'm looking forward to, how it's been done safely when it's done. People use things that are far more dangerous that we talk about with them, right? Like right. doing meth might be really bad for you. Doesn't mean it's an endorsement. Uh, it's us helping them try to make a better choice and a safer choice. Right, right. Yeah, no, really good point. Really good point. And I think the stigma is, it, it is a challenge. And, and I think within different cultures too, you're going to have an additional intersection of challenge. And so again, none of those intersections get any easier or less congested if we don't talk about them. So being able to find a way to safely communicate and get some of that information. And then we can continue to also look for, and it certainly was at the conference this year, but we can look for different trainings and opportunities to start, initiate that conversation. So whether you're being asked or not, you can put out some information or go learn something because it's happening. Whether you're aware of it or not, this is happening. And so being armed with the right kind of information is going to be really important. So I, I appreciate your thoughts on that. Okay, so ICBT, we'll sneak it in here. <laughs> so let's talk about, because we haven't actually talked beyond the medication support much about ICBT warrior P here, other than our population already has a hard time dealing with distress. But, you know, you and I were talking previously about ICBT. And one of the things I have noted from our prior conversation was even this flip on uncertainty and uh, that has been really interesting. But particularly when we put that through the lens of medication support, then I would love to hear more of your take on ICBT as we go into the medication realm. Yeah, I I don't really think of it necessarily any different in the medication realm as, as anywhere else. I'm just I'm excited that there's another kind of framework. And I I think by no means a replacement for ERP. And my experience is that it's kind of like it's it's a dialect or a language or however you want to think about it, but it jives better with some people and ERP jives better with other people. But I think it brings a couple things to the conversation that I that have felt a bit intuitive to me in my work and that I think we're missing a little bit or it at least heightens the the points, one of them being uncertainty. And I think most of us were trained around ERP of, of like OCD is a problem with uncertainty and we have to embrace uncertainty. And right. I like the framing through ICBT of it's not necessarily the problem. Patients with OCD deal with uncertainty quite well in a whole variety of contexts all day long, arguably 90 plus percent of their life. Right. It's only specific to these few areas that they happen to be sensitized to in these domains or themes or whatnot. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think where it's most important, and, and this doesn't apply to every permutation about OCD, but certainly some of them that tend to, to be obsessions about identity and who we are. Right. I think ICBT is really good at specifying it's this doubt in trusting yourself 
and this doubt in knowing who you are mm -hmm. and that actually we have a lot of certainty or we have as much certainty as we have about everything else we do without question, right? So okay. across the street, when we buy an apple at the grocery store and eat it, like whatever we're doing, there's not full certainty there, but we sort of say there's enough here that like I'll live a life of paralysis if I actually try to contemplate all aspects of the uncertainty that might be here. But this is reasonable enough that I'm going to live as if it's certain. At any one time, I guess, right, like you could suddenly become a pedophile. I mean, that's like theoretically possible. Yeah. That doesn't typically happen. And right. most yes. of us out there without OCD are not walking around being like, maybe I could be a pedophile tomorrow. I don't know. Like, let's lean into that. Like, that's that's. That's not that's not how any of us think. That's not logical. We assume that for everything we know in this moment in time, like I'm not one. Mm -hmm. And unless glaring information that is consistently showing up changes that, then then we kind of know who we are. Right. And so I think ICBT does really well at saying you have the information you need in the here and now. You actually know who you are. You just need to remember that and trust that. And we don't have to do this whole maybe I am, maybe I'm not totally lean into this whole idea thing, which I think has really hurt some people. And there's in what you do it. And again, it's very context dependent, tone dependent, how you're using it. So I, I realize like there's a, a place and time and a moment for all of it. But I think ICBT has shed a light on this piece of it, that you have enough, you have enough certainty to live as if it's certain. Move on. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point. And I think something like pedophilia, OCD is such a hard thing for people to understand. It's hard for the sufferer to understand because it's, it's so terrifying of uh, could I be a monster? Could I be this monster? Right. And society will be very quick to pass judgment and, and also say, like, yeah, if you've ever thought of a kid in this way, then you are a monster. Gross. Like, lock you up throw away the key, all the things, right? And so understanding pedophilia's OCD, even having a conversation about it, certainly there have been people in our field, there have been other people, public figures that have spoken out and gotten crucified about even suggesting that there's something called pedophilia OCD where you're not actually being a child molester or an abuser or a sexual assaulter. And so there's already so much misunderstanding around things like that. And then, and it, you know, if we're coming from an ERP treatment mindset, so family that is new to the podcast, that would be exposure and response prevention, then especially here in the States, and this is something I talked about with Fred on the podcast, this embracing uncertainty is, is pretty central and foundational to that conversation. ERP practice outside of the States, culturally, not as big on the embracing the uncertainty piece. But I mean, that it was very core. It is core to our understanding of ERP. And that's not that it's a bad thing. But when we go through certain domains, certain subsets of OCD, then and we go, OK, so I can't convince myself that I'm not a bad, monstrous person that could be capable of this. I just have to go around my day and be like, well, if I am, I am. But <laughs> here we go. I'm going to go get my coffee, put a pinch of salt in it and <laughs> be on my way. Right. You know, like that is not an easy thing to do. And it's, you know, it, it's become a topic of conversation of is it even a compassionate thing to do to let somebody live with the distress that they could potentially be this person. 
And and so that's part of, I think, kind of the juxtaposition, especially when you look at a model like ICBT and ERP. Both have their place and they're not replacements for each other, like you said. So while they could both treat OCD, they have a very different functionality to them. And having some certainty then can be really helpful when you're looking at anything, but especially your treatment. I even, you know, think about how vulnerable self themes of like, could it be negligent, right? Well, if someone's coming in to you, Ryan, and, and starting to have a conversation about medication, they might feel like it's negligent to go on a medication. They may feel mm-hmm. like it's negligent to go off a medication. And you can see how that context now is going to play so heavily into their reasoning, not based on what right here, right now is going to be best for their treatment, but it's going to either reinforce or not this idea of who they could possibly be. And so having an added understanding of how people are filtering and coming to some of these obsessions, it precedes the the actual uh, compulsion even of where they're arriving at this, if you can resolve some of that, you could bring a lot of freedom to people. And you may not even need then the medication, just having that psycho ed. Yeah. And I, I mean, I like to think about like, okay, let's step back. Like, what's the goal with like, how would we want to do this with someone who didn't have it? Like, how do we function without OCD, right? Like as someone without OCD, I have to deal with uncertainty. And with a lot of anxiety disorders in my practice, we talk about coping with uncertainty. It's a totally reasonable thing right. and we'll struggle with it. And then, like you said, there's these sort of parts of OCD treatment where it, it doesn't make sense. It's not the same logic we use everywhere else, even in that same person. It's not the same logic they use all day long. And so I think I think that's, that is important and that that's a piece I, I like. And, and to go back a little bit too on the uncertainty thing, because I... I I end up having this conversation with patients all the time because of A, B, C, or D thing they did with whatever therapist. And you can use this whole, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Like, I think we've had this in our, our message board group or whatever, but like, it really depends. So if you're doing that in a way that suggests, maybe you are, maybe you're not, what the hell, right? Again, tone, like, yeah. I don't have time for this shit. Let's move on. Well, great. Then we're kind of doing the same thing. Where I've seen patients really struggle is, I want you to fully accept that you might be a pedophile and that there's an equal, you know, it's equally possible. And I want you to lean into it and imagine that you really are a pedophile and that this is something that you could find out. Like, let's imagine now the worst case scenario. Now we're practicing a person ruminating about a thing that they don't really have any evidence is likely to be a thing. And it's again, I think I think that's where it goes. So you can use the words and you can use the approach. It's really about how you do it, the tone you do it. What is the overall like message you're sending about it, right? Yeah. Are you addressing the core fear or are you perpetuating and fanning the flame here? Because, you know, it, it, it's one of the things we've talked about this. I was talking with Dr. Caitlin Pensiati about justice-based treatment, too, and how we facilitate the ERP. I think sometimes... It's not that the ERP is bad, (laughs) but we as clinicians, we as people with lived experience, we as family members, any of us, doctors, we can get it wrong too. It's easy to miss the target and think, oh, I'm just really leaning into the ERP here, but that's not the target we were going for because this was never an egocentric thing that I wanted to be true about myself. This is egodystonic. This is the worst possible like thing I could even imagine being and I'm afraid I could be that person. 
So I don't need to sit there and daydream about like really. We want to teach them, right? Right. You can yourself and you can trust your senses like to know what you know, right? Which is a goal. And so, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes kind of like twist that, I think, a little bit. Right. And so part of the conversation, if we're thinking about it from an ERP lens, is like, are we really focusing our intervention and facilitating ERP in a beneficial way that is value driven? You talked at the beginning even about from working from an ACT standpoint, this acceptance and commitment therapy is a very value driven model that really augments well. ERP, but it can augment ICBT as well. And so the point is just being intentional that we're actually addressing the thing that we're trying to address, right? So whether that's building some functional certainty around the fact like, hell no, I'm not a pedophile, or building a better understanding about how we're going to target embracing the uncertainty and that just because I have a thought and it feels yucky doesn't mean I equal this thing. And I can go about my day. I mean, that would be a better application of ERP or that would be a better time to consider, do I want to go this way or that way? There really aren't replacements, though, for each other. It's not like, oh, I switched out centralene for, for cloxetine. <laughs> it's like, no, these are different, different things. They're both addressing OCD, but in completely different ways. And sometimes I think we're just missing the mark on our implementation of it. And so we, it's something that is worth being mindful of. But yeah, I, I think bringing some certainty back in and you can actually trust yourself and mixing that with the person that has been concentrating on the finger and can now feel the pain in the finger and exactly. nervousness in the I've finger. It's like, but I am certain because I see it. And it's like, okay, <laughs> we can get in such those mind bend situations. So having having some different options on how we can conceptualize that is really important. And I, I think just to say again, it might really matter on what permutation or theme of OCD you're talking about. And I, I can imagine on a contamination case, doing some version of this, where I've seen people or patients struggle with the approach the most is when it's more of an identity type of obsession in some way. That's just kind of my own experience. And I will also add that like everything that I'm even saying or even like remotely slightly critiquing, I've like I've been I've done at some point. Like I think we all we've all like leaned in and did an exposure or did a version of an exposure that like I would not do now. Right. After. I, I failed. I have failed. F, that's the F word around our house, by the way. <laughs> Whenever my husband and I say, oh, man, I failed. We're like, what did you learn? Let's flip that around because failure is such a such a damning word. But yeah, I failed in that, too. I've gone and totally messed up ERP. I've mm -hmm. totally I haven't always totally perfectly facilitated ICBT. And there's always going to be more to learn. But that's part of why I love having conversations like this, too, is we don't learn it by not getting out and practicing it and collaborating and having some interdisciplinary practice and going to trainings and then going, huh, that worked or it didn't. And having our own curiosity and observation around the process as well. And so I think that's a it's a really important point and it kind of draws us back to what you said in the very beginning about something that is quote-unquote fun in this is that we do get to be so creative because the mind because the people because we're not just like patients or clients we're people and we're creative and so being able to be creative with the implementation with the conceptualization with the treatment 
is also a huge piece and I think can bring a lot of value to folks, a lot of freedom that the people didn't even know was possible prior to treatment. And so it's pretty special to be a part of that. And I super appreciate all the time that you've given us, Ryan, two episodes at this point, stealing the time of a of a very busy OCD psychiatrist. Like, how often can we say that? So thank you. I know you're more than just OCD treatment and, and psychiatrist, but your insight into this conversation has been so, so valuable. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thank you for that. Alrighty, that was great, right? I mean, one real interesting thought that I had as I was preparing to share this with y'all was like, you know, I I feel like I rarely get to have some of these meatier, more clinical conversations with a medical doctor. And this is Ryan's scope through and through. He is a psychiatrist. He is specialized in mental health. He is further specialized in OCD. So it's not because he doesn't know the things. But often it can feel, and maybe this is just me, y'all, but often it can feel like we are working against the clock. Like we start talking and we're already out of time. (laughs) And it's hard when you're talking to doctors, when you're talking to specialists, because it's like, ah, there are so many things, so many questions we might have, so many concerns sometimes that we really want to have addressed. And so while I really do aim to collaborate with treatment team providers when possible, we're usually going into a conversation talking about the efficacy of what treatment, what medication a client might be taking. Is it better? Is it worse? Is it the same? Any new things maybe I've heard or they've heard that we could cue each other into because sometimes it's hard for clients and families to remember which person they told what. And so those are helpful conversations. But it's often a very narrow scope with a very targeted objective, and that's it. Billing consult minutes logged, you're done. And while I've had many of these types of conversations with other therapists, psychologists, clients, families, friends, just wanting to learn more, it was really, really nice, I have to say, to be able to take the time and unpack so many of these different topics with Ryan but also really get to understand and hear more about his philosophy on uncertainty and how to make sure we are engaging in this value-driven treatment. Because while yes, Ryan is a medical doctor and he knows and understands all those medical things, which is great. I'm sure that's exactly how it's presented on your business card, right, Ryan? Hi, doctor of the medical things. But he really does understand more than just that. And you would hope so, right? He can have these conversations with you, with me. Sometimes we've just got to be willing to ask. And it struck me because I was thinking about how in last week's episode, he had mentioned this too. Like he sometimes is, you know, whether it's a a telehealth appointment or whatnot, will be actively sharing with a client while they're like actively Googling, you know, what does this mean? Right. And listen, I'm I'm married to a, a software engineer. I get that some people are going to process things by computing and analyzing. And that's just part of their processing style. OK, nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, a question that we could pose to Google that could give us some kind of general understanding and statistic. I mean, Ryan can share those stats with you, too. But even more so. 
more than just the general public and how this might work or how this might present in the general public. In the case of talking with your doctor, with your psychiatrist, they know you. And so it really is a unique opportunity. And it was just a reminder for me of how important it is to recognize the value of being able to ask the question, to have the conversation, to connect with your doctor. And again, Ryan's not my doctor. He's not your doctor. But it just really illuminated that point for me again. I mean, you can't get it more customized than that. So for last week's Intrusive Thoughts segment, which for our newer fam is always my application segment in the show, we talked about starting a conversation with your family, with your crew, talking generally even about what you think about medication and why. How can we have these conversations? We need to be able to have them with each other if we're going to have them with our doctors, right? We need to be able to address this stuff. So let's find our trusted people and let's have some conversations. And that's where we started last week. So for this week, to build upon that, I want to ask you, fam, to consider if you were going to be talking with your doctor, be it your general practitioner, be it a nurse practitioner, a psychiatrist, I want you to think specifically and, and really concretely, like write it down or type it into a note on your phone, right? What question would you ask them? If you felt safe and you were feeling courageous enough to ask, none of the other gunk clouding it up, what would you ask them? And it's totally up to you what you do with that. Because, you know, you have to feel that sense of trust. You have to feel that sense of connection. We've talked about that. Still true. But what are those questions that you're like, hey, I would put this in Google. Could I ask my doctor, who maybe I just met, but maybe who knows me? Maybe knows my mom, maybe knows my kids, maybe has been my doctor for however many years. Maybe it's about medication. Maybe it's about a symptom. Maybe it's about a side effect. Maybe it's about needing hope or feeling hopeless. There is no wrong answer, but I encourage you to come up with a question, whether it gets asked or not. And then you know what? Someday, if and when you do find yourself across a computer screen in a telehealth console or in someone's office, maybe it'll be just a little bit easier to ask that question for you. I'll see you next week, fam. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. We will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like making a plea to talk with our doctors and see. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.